Welcome to the Three Priests Walk in a Bar podcast. gave us the professional countdown that time he went silent for three two one all right (laughs) we're back we're back it has been a long time coming uh we had to miss our regular uh two-week installment this um what would have been two weeks ago i guess by the time this comes out just due to scheduling stuff because life happens and this is we we don't make any money off of this podcast. So actually, I, I say I take that back. I'm the only one that makes money off of this podcast, but it's it's enough to buy a couple of new cables so you can hear me better. That but that's pretty much it. Now insert the shameless plug. Insert the okay, insert the shameless plug. Um, <laughs> yeah. So just a week we could have brought this up later, but I guess I'll say this now. Um, all the uh, t-shirt campaigns have been relaunched through December 1st, and they are deeply discounted. They are all like less than a dollar above cost or something like that. So we're not making any money off this. We just want you to have Father Adam's face on your sh- on your shirt. That's pretty much it. These are there's, other, there's other versions, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. These are truck stop prices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good. They are the new designs coming out in the new year. The essence of Father Lou and the essence of Father Nick and essence of Sweet Baby. Yes. So submit your pictures. Submit any candid pictures that you may have of uh, Lou and Nick, and see if we can get them on a shirt for you. (laughs) I don't think we get the poster child quality of Father Adam. (laughs) I don't know. We could take some of uh, some of your youth uh, lessons, Lou. Get to get some of those outfits on there. The one in the sheet should be pretty easy. Yes, yeah, that, <laughs> that'd be very popular. Yeah, though I think the one where you had the overalls on as Farmer Lou was was my favorite one. That was my favorite, holding the his very much alive plant. <laughs> yeah, it's still hanging in there. <laughs> I, think, I think what we really need doesn't look good. What we really need is a is a. Uh, Pastor uh, Sexy Legs Lou T-shirt. <laughs> uh, uh, we're not going to explain people down the road. Right. Yeah. Well, that's right. Father Sexy it's Legs. Our, it's our last episode of the season. Do you want to explain that one? Yeah, just real quick. It, I don't get into all the, the details. But when, when, I was, when I was a bicycle cop, I was in quite good shape. And apparently... <laughs> I was the talk of the of the downtown inner city hood, and um, and everyone kept talking about me, and they there was one time we're running down. Apparently, I'm I'm just told this. I'm not bro. I'm not boasting, and and I was in excellent shape. And you know, when you're a bicyclist, your legs do get firm. And so anyway, I'm I'm riding with my partner. And um, this woman that we were, we're passing by, she she goes, "Hey, sexy legs!" 
<laughs> and, and my partner turns around, who's African-American, and, and she says, not you, the white boy. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and apparently that's, you know, and when you're in, when you work in some of those communities, that it's very, it's very common when you're part of the community, you get nicknames and whatever. Like my, my partner had a nickname from that people gave and it just stuck and whatever. And I, I had a couple um, and, and that was one that kind of stuck. So that's where that comes from. But it was from my youth. Officer Sexy Legs became Pastor Sexy Legs. Yeah, not quite as sexy as I used to be, though. <laughs> All right. Well, like I said earlier, this is going to be our last episode of the season. Not our last episode, Lord willing, not our last episode ever. Um, but we're coming into Christmas time and the holidays, Advent, New Year's. Um, Father Nick is about to be a dad. Um, yeah, we're, we're actually he's due on November thirtieth, so we're not expecting him until like December sixth or later. <laughs> he's gonna stop for coffee on the way out. Um, but we got a lot. We got a lot going on, so we're just gonna take a brief break for about a, a month and a half, two months, and we will be back in the new year with uh, much much more shenanigans. Uh, Things that we, anything we can think of, we'll start thinking of topics and shoot us, uh, shoot us a message if you've got something that you want to hear us not do a really good job at talking about. Please let us know, and potentially um, a guest or two uh, in our podcast. Depending yeah, on how we that have to keep that around. We haven't, we haven't had any guests in the first season, so it'd be nice to get to, to get someone else podcast. Yeah. So we are since it is going to be Christmas time, we're going to be talking about. Uh, some Advent traditions and Christmas time um, traditions, and I guess we can talk a little bit about what we do personally as well as in our traditions. Um, but no good Christmas celebration is complete without a good drink. So, for the last time this year, let's go around the virtual kids table and talk about what we're having. So, Father Adam has a hibiscus hard lemonade. Oh, he's softened up on us. This is not a good drink. I, I, I need to remind myself to read labels when I buy these things uh, because I, I, I had one the other day from another maker that was a, a lemonade sort of cidery thing or uh, whatever. And uh, that one had stevia in it. And as I sipped the first sip of this now this is from devil's backbone hibiscus hard lemonade so i expected the quality that one normally would would get from a devil's backbone product they're a virginia uh, they're in nellysford virginia near charlottesville and um so i was not even inclined to look at the ingredients but as i took the first sip i was like stevia like it says corn syrup as well uh, but there is stevia leaf and monk fruit oh. um so this is a 100% thumbs down. However, if it was sweetened properly with real sugar, it might be a thumbs up. So, so I have two responses to that. First of all, you do know that Devil's Backbone got bought out by one of the big, uh, it was Budweiser or something like Anheuser-Busch, I think, bought it out. Yeah. So, so you should expect the quality to start going down. But also, um, what, 
what's going on here, Father Adam? Are you going <laughs> to show up with wine coolers next time? I'm going to come drinking White Claw next time. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know last time we joked about uh, about how you were kind of basic white girl, but you're really taking it to <laughs> There's no law when you're drinking a claw. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have redeemed that by uh, also having at the ready... I must have anticipated this this horrific letdown. This is also a devil's backbone uh, at seven percent. It's um, uh, always open late night juicy IPA, citrus, tropical, and floral notes. So I'm I'm holding out greater hope for this one to impress. I don't I don't even know what the ABV is on this uh, basic white girl stuff. That I you still feel like a commitment to finish it. I don't know. I mean, I, I to, to dispose of it would be alcohol abuse, I suppose. And it is 6%. <laughs> All right. So it's got some redeeming value. All right. Pastor Lou. All right. First, I'm the only one wearing some Christmas gear. Well, except Father Nick, because he's dressed like he will be on Christmas Eve. But <laughs> I've got a, I got a tree. I got a tree. All right. Yeah. Everyone on my street is is putting up Christmas stuff. And and for those that don't realize it, it's before Christmas. It's before Advent when we're recording. But uh, with COVID going on, everyone's in the mood to celebrate early. In fact, Father Adam has been spewing Christmas stuff on Facebook all week. So he's (laughs) in the mood. And and his his Christmas is even later. But we'll talk about that. Um, (laughs) Not really. so, So I do want to mention... You know, if you got an extra dime to share, I am helping to support Lily's Elves for children's arthritis. That was a former member of our congregation. Poor girl, she's a, she's a real trooper and a real hero. She uh, she's been fighting child arthritis for years. And um, anyways, they do a fundraiser as part of the Jingle Bell Run every year. And although it's virtual this year, I'm going to be doing it with my wife. And so I'll probably share that and make some shameless plugs on our Facebook group page. But I know you guys are cheap, so I don't expect anything from you. But maybe some other folks will will help out. It's a lot of love in this group. But it's a, it's a good, she's a real good spokeswoman for the, uh, for the, uh, the campaign. And she does a great job. And she, she was actually profiled in the VCU children's calendar one year as Wonder Woman. And that's how I always remember her. She's a real good kid. Um, Anyway, so um, I have a Christmas theme beer. I usually save it for my 12 beers of Christmas celebration. (laughs) I I always stock up on new Christmas beers, but this is... Did your true love give it to you? What's that? Did your true love give it to you? No, no. (laughs) Unless I'm my own true love. (laughs) Ooh, that's a commentary on on sin and pride. <laughs> yeah, a little little prideful, but not too proud. <laughs> um, here's here's a, I don't know if you can see it, but it's Einstock, which is from Iceland, Ooh. Or, or as we say, Eastland, and it's um, it's got a got a nice little uh, kind of a Thor kind of figure on there. But this this brandy's got reindeer. <laughs> Reindeer uh, antlers and a red nose, so it's a can. But it's but it's a it's a. Let's see how they describe it here. It's a it's a double block. It's six point seven percent 
And, you know, it's got the usual uh, chocolate tones and whatnot. It's, it's very good. I like it. And if you can find it, I would recommend it. It would be a much better choice than what Father Adam chose. Who is the we that says Eastland? P- people from Iceland. <laughs> okay, you, you said we, and I'm like, I've always said Iceland, but... <laughs> it's Eastland. But they, it, I, I just always, like, joke around that I'd like to move to Iceland. Uh, <laughs> I've been there before. I've been there before. I love it, and uh, and it's a wonderful place for hiking and outdoor activities. And it's just it's it's a uh, it is a it's a well worth place to stop by if you ever have a chance. If you're on your way to Europe or if you're making a special trip, because you can get some decent fares sometimes, at least based on pre-COVID times. Um, you know, because sometimes they have flights from even Baltimore, and so it's well it's a great adventure. So I would if you just happen to be kayaking in that area, just stop by Iceland on your way to on your way to England. Well, I, you know, I, I've always had an interest in the Vikings. I, I, I'm I'm part Norman, you know, with my my name, my Irish side name. Terry is Norman name. And um, and the Vikings actually are supposed to have landed near our house mythically up in Massachusetts, where I grew up. And, and of course, it's debated. But. Anyway, so that's why I'm all into this Icelandic stuff and everything. And I, I did, I've spent a lot of, I spent a significant amount of time in Scandinavia uh, for different reasons. So. My dad was stationed in Iceland for a brief period. A lot period. of folks, Reykjavik area is where a lot of folks yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah. He was it's at Keflavik Naval Air Station. Yeah. And if anyone from uh, the Icelandic embassy is listening, <laughs> throw me some bones, send something <laughs> or something, you know, I just made a big pitch to all 10 listeners. So come on. <laughs> if anyone from the Icelandic embassy was listening to this podcast. <laughs> I had some really of my parishioners go there this year and they said they loved it oh yeah that's great it's really and the people are, at least when i went were super nice it seems like a nice place it got profiled a lot in that uh uh the secret life of walter mitty if you guys saw that movie oh, yeah. great movie loved it uh, if you haven't had the chance to see it please please go see it um or just rent it or very something. cheap to get there but everything is extremely expensive yeah. like a, a very expensive food and stuff but it's an, it, yeah, that, that's where you got to think ahead. People yeah. going hunting there and stuff sometimes bring their own canned food, but um, I just made sure I planned ahead. So I knew like really budgeted what I could, I was uh, single at the time and really budgeted it out and I made it fine. And uh, it was, it was, a, it was, it was a good investment, just really cool place to go. All right, father, Nick, what's the bottle you're imbibing? Yeah, yeah. Well, first they they believe in elves there, right? So they uh, do, and trolls and all that good stuff. And what? I think some some Star Wars episodes might have been filmed there, right? Hoth. And other things uh, and NASA astronauts astronauts used to um, train there, so it's it's yep. a new place. Christopher Nolan's movie Interstellar. Some of the some of the planets that they visit, uh, some of those locations were actually Iceland. It's actually quite interesting. Father Nick, you've had responses to everybody's beer selection thus far usually <laughs> it's spicy today. Is, is there something to respond to is are we debating this no, 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 I, I was trying to make a segue but y'all keep like jumping in i was gonna say they they, they believe in elves there in iceland and i'm drinking the mad elf, mad elf. oh yeah 
Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, but y'all ruined my segue. It was, it was so perfect. You know, I was just going to go ahead and, and. Was it really us that ruined it? It really was. <laughs> but anyway, this was pretty good. This is the first time I've had it. It's from, um, how do you pronounce that? Is that Trogs? Tregs? Trogs. I don't really know. I buy their. Got an umlaut. Craig. <laughs> anyway, uh, ale brewed with honey and cherries. Uh, but uh, it's 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 just um, it's a hint, you know, of of those flavors, and uh, it's it's pretty good, and it's eleven percent. Ooh, yeah, that's a really strong one. All right, it rhymes with rogues. Okay, trogues. Yeah, I looked it up. Well, I I am the the weakest link today. I'm only at a five point four percent, but this is good because I haven't had too much to eat today. Um, <laughs> So this is, I don't have the bottle, but it's a nice, it's a stout. This is from uh, Aleworks Brewing Company down in Williamsburg, Virginia. It's just called the Coffee House. Uh, it's, a, it's a seasonal thing. I don't know why it's only seasonal because, I mean, it, 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 it tastes good. I mean, it tastes like a coffee stout. Um, fairly light, not too heavy, but it's good. I've been meaning to try this one. Um. I picked it up when I was down in Colonial Williamsburg over last weekend. Um, there's a great, there's, there's a brewery down there. I can't remember if that's Aleworks that's in Colonial Williamsburg, but like, if you've ever been there right off of Merchant Square, there's a place back there um, that's got a pretty good, um, pretty good beer selection. So they're churning out a lot of good stuff down there, um, along with uh, a fine selection of imported cheese, which I highly recommend. Anybody who knows me really well knows I really love cheese. I do too. Like a good, uh, a good creamy Havarti is my go-to. Uh, okay, so I was hoping someone would make a joke somewhere, but I guess I guess the segue's on me. Uh, then I, I was trying to be nice because it's Christmas. So <laughs> I was gonna say we've seen your Facebook page. We know you're cheesy. There you go. Okay, see, you should have come in with that. I thought he said I, I'm farty, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is our musical downhill so yeah we should stop there <laughs> best cheese i think i ever had was in ohio the amish country of ohio it was the uh heinies cheese chalet heinies heinies h-e-i-n-i -I. <laughs> mm -hmm. you could sample for free like 50 different kinds of cheese it was great i loved it there was a do you guys i don't know if you guys remember uh in there was an ad in the Richmond area a long time ago. It, it might've been like before I was born, um, back when short pump wasn't even a mall, the Heine winery. Do you guys recall ads for that? Heine. familiar. The Heine, Heine, it was a joke that radio stations would play. It's like, Oh, you just keep going down broad street. You'll find it. And they just keep sending people all the way out to like Goochland. Yeah. I think. <laughs> um, but their their joke was, was back in the day, right, Nick? Yeah, it was um it was pretty uh it was pretty back in the day. Their their tagline was like Heine Winery where you can lift your Heine and cut the cheese. <laughs> this, this is on NPR, right? Yeah. <laughs> was it an actual winery? No, it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> that that was the fun part. All right. Transitioning to Christmas time. We have all been desperate for a little Christmas this year because um, it's just been one one heck of a year. And 
We are hopeful that next year will be, if not, maybe not good, but better than 2020. Um, there's, you know, hope of a, of a vaccine around the corner, which we're all just kind of crossing our fingers that we can at least get our most vulnerable people um, immunized. So we're looking, 2021's looking like it'll be all right. It'll be okay. Um, but for the time being, we are going to celebrate Christmas uh, in 2020. And to that end, we should talk about how we like to celebrate Christmas. Um, I know um, Father Nick's tradition has some carols built into it. Uh, Father Lou, um, I think you've got... I keep saying Father Lou recently. I know you want to be called Pastor Lou. I, there's that... I feel like there's a tradition slash myth of like Martin Luther and the Christmas tree, but maybe we can talk more about that. And Father Adam hates Christmas on December 25th. Oh, wait, he's denying it. I'm on the Julian calendar, uh, the, rather the revised Julian calendar, so I celebrate Christmas on the 25th. Of- oh, you do? Oh, I didn't. I figured everything was a week behind. No, everything on the on the old calendar is 13 days behind, but uh, so Christmas is the 7th uh, for, for the Julian Christmas is uh, on the 7th for probably about half of the world's Orthodox Christians, but uh, the OCA falls... Uh, some somehow about 40 or 50 years ago, somewhere about 45 years ago, I, I don't remember exactly which, I think maybe in the early 80s, maybe late 70s, um, for whatever reason, the Orthodox Church in America elected to uh, switch to the revised Julian calendar. I think part of the reasoning was uh, evangelistic uh, in nature and uh, half of the world's Orthodox Christians were already on the revised Julian. The Greeks were, and this is the the church that never changes. Correct. I was going to say, y'all, y'all listening. Uh, uh, he has just admitted that the Orthodox Church of America <laughs> changed something. Well, the, the I, I would say that I disagree with that change, but that was long before I was ever Orthodox or ever cared, and I've never ever been on the old calendar or the Julian proper calendar. Um, I'm on whatever calendar my bishop is on, so I don't really care that much deeply about it, although I freely admit that that's the proper calendar. But um, uh, it's, uh, like I said, I'm on whatever calendar my bishop's on. Um, But it it, it makes an interesting uh, thing. Pascha is always the same day, no matter what calendar you're on. So at, at Pascha, and for about, I don't know, 40 or 50 days or so, uh, the uh, all Orthodox Christians are on the same calendar until we start to have, you know, the, the kind of calendar split happening again. But it, so movable feasts are never on the same day, but fixed dates like, or fixed feasts like when Pascha is, it's always going to be on the same day. So Pascha and, and Pentecost and Ascension all Orthodox Christians everywhere celebrate on the same day. Let's maybe just keep going with with Father Adam since he's seems seems to have hijacked those first couple of minutes. Um, <laughs> I w- I would be curious to know like what does what does a Christmas celebration uh, look like in the Orthodox Church? Are there special liturgies? Because uh, I'm thinking of like um, in Pascha, you know, there's a very specific you know liturgy that I have missed twice now. Um, I'm wondering, is there something similar for Christmas? Well, 
Yes and no. Um, what what Nick is refer sweet baby Nick is referring to is uh, the Orthodox tradition of of doing uh, the divine liturgy for Pascha, the whole the whole vigil, uh, you know, the midnight office and um, or nocturne um, and matins, uh, and then right straight into the divine liturgy, all of which starts at about eleven thirty p.m. and goes until about two three o'clock in the morning, and then we feast. Um, that's a very traditional Pascha celebration. In some places, they will do that same sort of lineup uh, or similar uh, at Christmas time, but more more often than not, you're going to find uh, you'll have the the Paschal or sorry the Christmas vigil the night before, which oftentimes is comprised of the royal hours leading up into um, uh, the Great Compline. Um, with matins, which is the vigil, and then in the, in the morning, uh, celebrating the uh, divine liturgy for the feast of, of nativity. But an, an interesting tradition that not all parishes follow. Mine uh, hasn't ever done it here, um, and that my, my my first parish actually had fallen out of out of doing it communally. They would do it oftentimes at their own homes, but. The Christmas Eve meal is very important. Uh, and a, it's a Slovak tradition or a little Russian tradition, not, not specifically Slovak, but very common among the, the Galician and the um, uh, people in the, uh, the subcarpathian Russia. Um, you, you have the Velia meal, which is the, the Christmas Eve meal. And you put hay on the table or underneath the table, um, obviously representing the, the manger uh, and the, the barn. And uh, you're still in the fasting period. We begin the, the fast uh, on November 15th, uh, which is when Orthodox Advent, if you will, or, or the Christmas Lent or the, the, the winter Lent begins. And so it's a, it's a nearly as strict a fast as during the Great Lent for Pascha, but, but a little bit more merciful, I suppose. Um, and so you're, you're still fasting uh, Christmas Eve. And so you have, there, there's like 12 different uh, dishes uh, that are served. It's not exactly like a Seder, but like you can compare it to that in a way. Um, one of the main, for whatever reason, is a mushroom soup. Um, I'm sure there is somebody somewhere who could enlighten me as to some esoteric reason why, but there's, there's different foods that are served and, and stuff. As a family, we have done it maybe twice in the 20 years that I've been Orthodox, um, just because there's simply so much going on uh, on Christmas Eve that there's just not a lot of time to be prepared to do that. Um, and I've, I've been at a monastery on Christmas Eve where they, they serve the full Valia uh, meal after the, uh, the vigil. And, and that was very nice. I enjoyed that. Um, but that's how, you know, the Christmas, you don't have a Holy Week service like you do uh leading up to uh pascha but you do have the entire uh, christmas lent where you're doing oftentimes they'll do we'll do a, a wednesday night service um now keep in mind if you're serving this the the office of the daily office in a monastery there's a lot more going on during advent um christmas lent um but we assume of course that we're talking more about parochial experience and you know what we're doing in parishes um and so there, there's there's 
oftentimes you're going to see more events scheduled in in the uh, parish during this time, just intentionally to bring folks together to uh, be prepared uh, together for um, for the Christmas feast. So on Wednesdays this year, we're doing a uh, the, the office of small compline with the canon to the Mother of God on Wednesday nights um, at St. Andrews. And it's done in a lot of places that way as well. Some some people will just serve the the uh, small Vespers, um, you know, just the regularly scheduled small Vespers if you do that on Wednesday. Um, but others will serve an Akathist or a Paraclesis to the Mother of God. But uh, I kind of like doing the, the small complaint. It, it, it kind of has a Lenten character to it and an anticipatory character to it. The, uh, the canon especially uh, has a lot talks a lot about the mother of God and bearing, bearing God uh, in her person and uh, in her womb and stuff. So it, it's kind of a, a good midweek way of uh, coming together on purpose. And sometimes we'll follow that with food or with, with a discussion, but, uh, or just a simple homily, but um, uh, it, it's nice kind of to draw, draw your people in, you know, and especially at this, this year, especially 2020. Um, you know, we've just sort of somewhat come out of, of, of a quarantine and then have been plunged into a kind of semi-quarantine again in the state of Virginia, though I will acknowledge, uh, I'm, not, I'm not real keen on acknowledging much for this governor, but it has at least been a little more uh, accommodating to, to church services. Um, not necessarily meal gatherings, but, um, you know, it's, it hasn't really put a, a, a kibosh in anything that we've done at St. Andrews. We, we, we don't tend to get a lot more than 25 people, but you can have more than 25 people in, in the parish uh, for a worship service, just not for a meal afterward, according to the, the new restrictions, which make it a class one misdemeanor. So we kind of have to head count for that. Right now anyway, right? You're, you're What's that? This is a time of fasting for you anyway, right? Well, yes, but here's the secret for Orthodox fasting. You know, I love the fasting times because it means people have to be a lot more creative with the food they bring. And so you get some of the more uh, interesting and very creative and very delicious meals, uh, even though they, they don't have meat and eggs and milk and fish, wine or oil, although on weekends, most of them, uh, you can eat fish uh, during the- Are the you Christmas. foregoing the, the Thanksgiving turkey? This uh, this coming Thursday, I am not. In fact, I'm slaughtering two of I'm slaughtering two of my turkeys on Monday, um, uh, for in preparation for the um, for the uh, super spreader event. I mean, for Thanksgiving, and um, Dude, tell his bishop he's, he's <laughs> as I understand it, a bishop will be present. Uh, but that's all uh. I'll say. Um, but. Uh, no, for those who are on the Julian calendar, they uh, have not yet begun their their Saint Philip's fast. So Thanksgiving is a is a non-issue for for them. For those of us who are on the revised Julian calendar and have started the fast, there's a general uh, unspoken dispensation to give thanks on a national holiday designed to uh, to thank God. Uh, so. Uh, it's one of those you do whatever you do <laughs> and I will be uh, joining someone at their home where they're serving food so you don't be an ungracious guest <laughs> so you eat what's served 
<laughs> you don't so be the a biggest, Pharisee. The biggest takeaway from all of this, I'm I'm realizing if so you're Orthodox, one of the if you're Orthodox, one of the perks, or if you're considering becoming Orthodox, one of the perks is mushroom soup at Christmas time. That's that was the big takeaway that I got from that. Um <laughs> it's quite good. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of mushrooms myself. Um like occasionally like mixed in with some with some zucchini or maybe on steak or something like that. They're not bad, but by themselves, it's just not too much. I love mushroom soup. Me too. But of course I like mustard um ice cream and probably get that waffle house beer if I could. Yeah, I don't know if uh, if you guys may have seen did did Lou, did you post it in the group yet? No, I thought I'd save it until as a Christmas treat. Oh, okay. Well, then by maybe by the time I'm not I am not beyond asking someone there out there in podcast or Facebook land to get me some. It but it's unfortunately <laughs> only sold in in uh in Georgia, I think is Georgia. where So this is a uh this is a Waffle House for those who don't know, this is a Waffle House bacon infused beer. Which I've heard some, I've heard some crazy things, but Waffle House having a beer is like that's that's up there for me. It's not made by Waffle House. It's made by a, a brewery in Georgia, and they are just using that name, kind of like the one up in New England used the Dunkin' Donuts name. Well, they had to have their approval. Somebody with a taste, somebody with a palate f- for. Waffle House tasted this beer and said, yeah, this will represent us. So that, that immediately puts me off. Don't you knock it. That's the people's house. It is. Uh, yeah. I get, I've never, I've never actually eaten at a Waffle House. Oh. Um, I haven't. Never um, been to a Waffle House. No, I've been to a Waffle House. Bathroom that sells waffles. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I hear. <laughs> I've, I've been to one, like when I did Grubhub driving, like I, I, picked up some stuff at a Waffle House. It actually looks okay, you know. I was kind the of... The one in Alexandria that I used to go to had a few homicides outside of it, but that's... A, that sounds about right, you know. Naturally. But the one that's near us is fine, and I haven't been to it, but um, I know that there's no problems there. I've heard other folks go there. And out in the Midwest and everything, you know, sometimes that's like your only place to go is like a Waffle House kind of place. So you, you stop in where there's food. Anyone listening to this drunk food after 2 a.m. for a lot of people. That's true. That anyone listening to this podcast who frequents Waffle House, uh, you know, message us first, first, uh, first tell us why, and then <laughs> tell us what your favorite dish is. Uh maybe I can I can start putting together something and uh, and and visit one day. And if anyone's visiting Georgia, bring back some Waffle House beer. It goes on sale December 18th. Yes, indeed. I, I now am intrigued enough to try it, believe it or not. All right. Pastor Lou, what does uh what does a Lutheran Christmas look like? Well, really, you know, I'm Italian, so Italian <laughs> with you know the Irish has the Norman, French, you know, I'm a mutt. Um, my wife's Italian and Croatian, but the Italian seems to overwhelm everything else. So with Lutherans, you know, there's no real one way, uh, you know, as far as culturally, it will probably reflect your national tradition. So for, for us, um, it's uh, a meal, a lot, traditionally it would be a meal of seven fishes on, on seven fish on uh, the night before. Fishes. <laughs> yeah, I'm turning into Italian. Hey, you guys, don't be, don't be disrespectful. Show me some respect. Um, I'll have to teach you some respect. Um, 
<laughs> so, so anyway, yeah, it's it's a tradition because it was a fasting day back in the day, and in, um, in southern Italy, where my family comes from, where Christine's family. Or- Wait, which day? Which day was the fasting day? Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. Okay. Yeah, and so so there was a tradition of eating fish for dinner, and uh, a lot of times it's several courses or at least several dishes with fish, different fish in it. And and so the big one is, is we call it bacala. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's a bacala. salted cod dish. And depending on who makes it, we vary, um, it'll vary, but in general, expect some Italian sauce or, or gravy as my grandmother called it. Gravy. <laughs> Uh, you, you, again, I'm going to say we, we call it gravy, right? But uh, gravy. now I'm talking for all the Italians out there. But um, <laughs> anyway, so that it's not, um, there, again, it's mostly, if you were to try to say what's a Lutheran Christmas Eve, as far as food and everything and traditions in the home, it's going to probably be national. But of course, a lot of Lutherans come from national churches in their history. Um, as in other places like Africa, where there's a large Lutheran body, or in South America, where there's Lutherans, um, you know, they're going to have different traditions than the Northern Europeans. So, sorry to disappoint you. No, no big trend there. Well, what's the? Um, I, I alluded to this earlier. There is some kind of a uh, tradition slash myth with uh, with. Um... Martin Luther and the Christmas tree. Maybe you can uh, maybe you can elaborate on that. Like, is there is there any truth to that? Or well, that's it's hard to say. You read a lot of mythic things. I think I was going to talk a little bit about the Advent wreath, but it's kind of parallels. You know, it comes out of the Northern Germanic Scandinavian traditions, particularly with um, a celebration of Odin in the darkest part of the year, with the light now going to start to come back. And so there was a lot of different practices of greenery inside the house and lit fires and things like that. So it, there's some pagan tradition in there or that comes from there, but it was it was replaced. It was co-opted, whatever you want to say. Um, culturally, they just adjusted the celebration towards the Christian representation. Whether Luther was responsible for that, eh, I don't I don't know. But the, the story is that, at least what I've read, is that not so much necessarily the tree, although that some people attribute that to Luther, that the light of a candle on a tree might be re- reflecting of him, that um, some say that it reflects, you know, if there's like a crush underneath you were looking up through the trees, it reminds you of looking up in the stars of Bethlehem from below or um, the, the, they say the triangle reminds you of the Trinity and all these different things. And I think that's probably projected on to it later. I'm not sure. I do know that there are pictures from that period, not photographs, pictures, <laughs> paintings of Luther with his family surrounded by the tree. He is known to have had several different family um, practices Um for one of his hymns, there was a there was a tradition of the parents would be dressed up as uh, angels, and the children would be the people, and they'd sing their parts, you know, from the steps or wherever, you know, just kind of making it a almost like you do with the living nativity, just kind of living out the story. And and so Luther was very into uh, family ministry, and uh, grew to love his family, and I think he. I, 
you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed to say they're going to kick me out of the Lutheran church. I forget how many children he had. I think it was around, wasn't it around 10, Nick? Do you remember? Yeah, I, I don't remember. He had quite a few, though. He had I, quite a few. Not all live. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> but so anyway, so so with the Christmas tree, you know, there's a, there's a mixture of things that feed into it, including the fact that there was a time when the feast... The, the Feast of Adam and Eve was on December 24th. So there were a lot of passion plays that would talk about Adam and Eve. And there would be, of course, a tree present. And of course, what's on a tree but an apple. And so they think that might have contributed to the first ornaments, which eventually became red glass balls. And everyone, you know, have seen those around. So there's a lot, but like a lot of cultural behaviors and with Christmas there's a, in the home anyway, there's a lot of cultural influences. I, I always find there's multiple streams. So whenever once someone says there's one source, I'm a little suspicious. And I suspect Martin Luther may have added to that tradition. I doubt he fully invented it on his own. He could have, but I doubt it. I mean, there's a lot of traditions that, um, uh, people say that, you know, different Christmas traditions came from different um, pagan um, celebrations and things like that. People say like gift giving or like certain, a, a lot of people um, trace it back to this, this Roman feast of Saturnalia, um, which is like, you know, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I haven't researched Saturnalia all that much, but like, I, I don't think people should be bothered by that too much. I mean, it's like, you know, a tradition is a tradition. And if, if Christians say like, Hey, that's actually kind of good. What if we did this to, to, you know, glorify God and celebrate, you know, what we're doing? I don't, I don't think that's necessarily so wrong. I mean, it hasn't stopped me from, uh, giving gifts to people or, or much less receiving them to be, to be quite honest. Um, and you know, I love bringing in a, bringing in a tree, you know, bring, I say bringing in a tree, more like bringing down a plastic tree from the attic so I can keep it up for three months. (laughs) Um, Father Lou, I have a question for for you, and this may have a very simple answer. I remember when I worked for uh, the Religious Goods Shop in Richmond, uh, when it was still located on Belmont in Carytown. Um, And of course, we would sell to, you know, it was it was primarily a Catholic consistory store, but it it was also, uh, you know, the supplier of all things churchy for ye old people who use candles and stuff. Um, and we would often sell Advent candles to people. And the Lutherans always wanted blue candles. Oh, yeah, I can solve that for you. And and I was always curious as to what in the world blue as opposed to purple and, and how that played out. Well, the, again, there's the story. And it, again, it come, there was a tradition in Sweden and other places with the Feast of Odin to have a circular wreath of some sort with candles on it so there again there's the parallel of the tradition with the christmas trees and but there is a saying a belief that martin luther helped introduce or popularize the advent wreath during his period and um in it went from him the lutherans at least in the 16th century whether it was directly him or not and was was popularized enough that the roman catholics also incorporated it, which is pretty surprising considered the, the state of affairs between Roman Catholics and Lutherans at that time. And somewhere along the line, I don't know what, I have never seen anything which said what was used back in Luther's day as far as 
colored candles. But with the liturgy, uh, purple or violet being the, the primary color traditionally for Advent in Germanic countries, Italy, you know, Roman Catholic countries, that that, that became the standard with perhaps a pink or rose candle uh, for for the the joy Sunday for you know just it's that third Sunday of Advent and the the thing is that apparently in northern Europe and in Sweden and other places like that there 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 came a time or maybe it was always a tradition within you know maybe not a major tradition but within the country the the region that they had blue candles to represent purity. Blue used to be the color for purity. You know how, like, as, like at one time, pink was the color for boys, believe it or not. Culturally, that changes. And bl blue is a color for purity. And that's why when you see Mary, the mother of God, she's always in, in paintings wearing blue because it helped those that couldn't read to identify her as the pure mother of God. And, and so the blue is very closely tied to Mary. And you always think of Mary at Advent Christmas time. And so with their movement towards trying to focus more, not to erase the penitential aspect of Advent, but to focus more on the expectant nature of Advent, um, there was a transition and or popularization of the blue candle. And so I see both in Virginia. It's in the Lutherans by, in Virginia? It's by Lutheran congregations. And some may only use one candle. Now, there was a guy who was a missionary in the 1800s, mid-1800s, I think it was, who, because um, the, the, the popularity of the Advent wreath, it wasn't as pervasive as today. And he's given credit for popularizing the modern idea and usage of the Advent wreath. In his wreath, it came because kids at his mission school kept asking him, when's Christmas? When's Christmas? When's Christmas? Is it Christmas yet? And so he came up with a wreath with 24 red candles and then a white candle for Christmas. That is different than what we understand to be the traditional idea of uh, Luther, Lutheran idea of an Advent wreath. Um, but, you know, so some, this one seminary scholar, he argues, of course, it's a scholar, take it with a grain of salt. They're always trying to come up with something new. Um, <laughs> right, Nick? Um, it's, it's, it, it's uh, they say, well, it, it morphed and changed and reduced itself to the four candles. I don't know. I don't know what's the truth. It's so, it's so mixed up. But the red and white candles, you can still see it's used in some places like in England. It's pretty popular using red and, and, and a one white candle for the Christ candle. And, um, and so it's not universally uh, purple and, and uh, with a white Christ candle. The, Adam, I can. Oh, I'm sorry, Lou. I thought. I'm not, yeah, the one thing I would like to say is that even with some Lutherans, there's variety, but it's not. It's not. It's not supposed to be this way, according to some of the, the rubrics and instructions I've read. Is that you know this day and age where we can make wreaths out of almost anything and, and make a a display out of almost anything. Sometimes you'll see sold, an Advent wreath that goes around the Paschal candle. 
And at least traditionally mm -hmm. in the in our denomination, they try to dissuade you of that because the 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 center candle is not the paschal candle, which is a candle of its own import. The center candle they call the Christ candle, and it's supposed to be a, a different you know white candle. That that's the more traditional way, but it's so mixed up. I don't now know. Now, is the pink candle is that Gaudete or Leitari? I forget what it is in an Advent. Yep, Gaudete and Gaudete. Yeah, it's because of the the rubric. What 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 do these words mean? Gaudete means rejoice, and it's the beginning of the psalm that would have been uh, that would have been the introit in the medieval church. Are you saying L like Laudate? Gau with a G. Gau. G A U D E T E. Gaudete. And so when you see like the different um, the different names that they or themes they attribute to the Sundays, the third Sunday is usually some kind of joy, right? Um, they might give it a different name. I think isn't it sometimes like uh, John the Baptist or something, or, or I forget. There's different ways. Look it up on the internet. Um, but uh, a lot of folks will use like um, hope, love, joy, peace. That's a very popular theme they will use for the week. But the joy is an old attribution due to the rubrics. So, so Father Adam, I, I think I can add, uh, um, may, maybe amplify or perhaps slightly contradict uh, some of the stuff Pastor Lou said about the blue candle. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, not, why would a, why would a Lutheran know why Lutherans you blue? I don't know why. <laughs> because because it's not just Lutherans, right? Anglicans do this. I know, but I was speaking from Lutherans. But go ahead and explain why Anglicans. No, no, I mean, and, and like you said, there there's there's oftentimes multiple traditions, right? There's there's multiple different uh, origins of different things, but at least at least from the Anglican uh, and Episcopal tradition. Uh, so first of all, you know, of course, that this this idea that every parish has its own set of altar hangings and um, investments of multiple different liturgical colors is is a modern thing, right? I mean, poor parishes in uh, in the you know even even a, a hundred or a couple hundred years ago might only have one set of kind of regular use vestments and altar hangings, and then a second set of, um, you know, uh, celebratory uh, or, or high holy day vestments and altar hangings. So, uh, you know, whatever that color might be, and it might not even be one particular color, uh, the, 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 you know, they would just have the kind of regular use and then, and then the celebratory use uh, vestments. Because, I mean, Father Adam, you know more than probably any of us how expensive vestments can be since you have this, this, uh, this addiction to buying new vestments uh, that I your wife do. often, uh, you know, <laughs> castigates you for. So I, I would think it'd be probably like the poor American cousins, right? of the Anglican communion mostly because I, I know I've read in the past that red and white was really traditional in, in, in the Anglican Church of England. Well, so I'm, I'm just, I'm talking about things like vestments and, and altar hangings, you know, uh, so you, you might break out your, your white and gold for, for any kind of high holy day or high feast day, and then you might have something else that's, you know, that that's, uh, kind of covers every other 
season uh, for just the regular parishes, right? The, the places where you might in fact have, um, uh, you know, a, a whole array of vestments and altar hangings uh, for the different liturgical seasons would be in the great cathedrals. The cathedrals would be filled with these, uh, you know, um, more expensive and and uh, and various different vestments and altar hangings and so on that that corresponded to the different liturgical seasons. Well, one of one of the most important cathedrals, of course, in England is is Salisbury Cathedral, right? Uh, and has there is an ancient uh, rite. Uh, in terms of liturgy uh, that goes back to the Salisbury Cathedral. It's known as the Sarum Rite. Uh, and, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And anyway, I, I don't know how true this is or not, but at least during the liturgical renewal movement of the, of the late 19th into the early 20th and early up to mid 20th century, um, one of the arguments that was made by liturgical scholars was that the Sarum Rite or Salisbury Cathedral used blue instead of purple for Advent. And so uh, I, I don't know if that's actually true or just an argument that got some traction, uh, but whatever the case is, uh, it, it became a practice then, not just among Anglicans, but other denominations to citing the serum rite or the serum use to start using blue instead of purple and to argue that the purpose of that was to downplay the penitential aspect of Advent and, and upplay say Marian devotion or expectation to give Advent its own kind of tradition and weight as opposed to making it what it is say for the Orthodox which is a little Lent you know or as it used to be called in uh, the medieval church, the St. Martin's Lent, because it would, for the medieval Catholic church, it would often start with uh, St. Martin's Feast, right, right. Um, November 11th. So, so anyway, it, it, it may be, uh, now I'm, I, that, that doesn't necessarily need to contradict what you're saying, Pastor Lou, but at least the, the use now by Episcop some Episcopalians and some Lutherans may have more to do with this liturgical renewal movement, arguing that the old serum use or serum rite was blue instead of purple. I, I doubt it because the only time I've ever, and of course I could be wrong, but I, I, I doubt it in the fact that in Lutheran literature that I've never heard that argument made. They always refer to practices in Sweden but that doesn't mean in Sweden they didn't have a similar practice, you know that. So, sure. Right. But but the, the thing is, I don't I don't think the Anglican tradition is a major player in Sweden. I I, I just don't suspect that. So it could no, develop. It might, in, it might have been the same. I'm, not, I'm just saying it could right. develop separately. I'm you're not right, saying right. you're wrong. Relax. I agree. That's what I'm saying too. So in two separate places. We're fighting at Christmas. We're going to get lumps of coal. <laughs> Come on, stop. Because, because ah. the liturgical colors didn't get standardized really until. I know they didn't. Right. I mean, it's not it's not as if the ancient or even medieval Christians all agreed on what the liturgical colors were. 
We don't agree now, Farley, hardly. <laughs> right. So, Father Nick, what did you just wear a, a coat of many colors like Joseph? Except, of course, some people say he didn't have a coat of many colors, but that's another story. But, but Pastor Lou, one thing I wanted to mention, I, and I thought maybe you would have some more information about this. Is cutting into your time. <laughs> All of the Lutheran churches I know, and some Episcopal churches have have followed suit. Uh, learned picked this up as a tradition from the the Lutheran churches that I know of uh, have a Christmon tree yes in there yeah. and, and that was started by a Lutheran church in Danville Virginia right that is that is a hundred percent noble and correct um they I, it, I don't know the person I don't she's passed yeah they use just different um Christograms reflect different symbols for Jesus Christ as part of the. They used a lot of times they're crocheted or needlepoint or some type of handcraft, and the tree will be um, decorated with the the chrismon symbols, um, which is a, a teaching tool again. You know, it's a way to teach kids and and remind adults of different parts of the Jesus story. And this one woman came up with the idea and the Danville church still gets a lot of visitors because it's like the original Chrismon tree. A lot, it's kind of like, um, you know, a lot of the Catholics I run into say that the Advent wreath is Catholic. Like they're, they just surprise Lutherans even use it, even though the history is supposed to be otherwise. Um, I've run into many churches, Methodists, for example, and they were, t they were shocked that Lutherans used it, and it comes from a Lutheran tradition within the United States in the 1950s, hmm. the church in Danville. I, I think it's called Ascension, isn't it? I'll check, just so in case people want to know, but um, but what is my Chrismon? church What's that? What is Chrismon? Like? Well, you, you know, Chris, Christograms, like what you have on your, probably on some of your stoles, whatever, different symbols that represent Jesus Christ. Right. They will they will make a symbol and use those symbols as ornaments. That's all it is. Yeah. But that's is that what they're called. They're called chrismans. Oh, I see what you mean. And, and so they decorate the tree with different symbols. Yes. Instead okay. of instead of um, Disney figurines and other things, Star Wars symbols, they'll use like traditional <laughs> symbols of Jesus Christ. It says it came from. It says it came uh, from, it started in 1957, started at the Lutheran Church of the Ascension. Yeah, I think that's what I said. Um, that's right. I can't remember. I'm sorry. And they uh, neither can I, so you're okay. Now that, that's, that's what Lou said. Uh, and, and they tend to be um, in, in, the, in what's now accepted, as in, at least in the Western churches, as the liturgical color for Christmas, which is white or gold. So they tend to be white and gold. Decorated. That's true. You're correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wow, that's funny. I never, I've never heard of it. Yeah, we the the Lutheran churches I've been at have all had their own version of it, and it usually <laughs> is a is a craft that either children and or adults are participating in, and that's kind of a neat legacy. Hmm. We've done it at well, Fort Church. Yeah, and we used we used to let the well once I got there the the altar guild used to not let the kids touch them, but I was a little bit more homey. And so we had a special time to get together with the kids and decorate the tree together. And that gave you the opportunity to really talk about the symbols and do it all together. It was kind of nice. 
It's interesting. We have like when you find like the the color purple is. I grew up as you know Roman Catholic, and of course Advent was purple, uh, the same kind of purple as Lent, mostly probably because you had one set of purple vestments and paraments to decorate the church with. But you'll find in the Orthodox tradition that Advent is red. Um, you, and and sometimes you know again in poorer churches you wear the same red at Advent as you'd wear on, in some Orthodox traditions, you wear red at, uh, the, the, the main celebrant wears red at, at the Pascha celebration, changes from white to red. Uh, that, that's not done everywhere. Um, but the real practice in the Orthodox tradition is light and dark. And I think that kind of gives a, a nod to the parishes that really are limited in their, their resources. And so you have light and dark. Um, and so what, what you will sometimes find, and now that I found my Ukrainian connection for inexpensive yet beautifully made vestments, uh, you'll find sometimes a, a deep red or a maroon will be used during, um, during Advent, which is what I do. Um, and uh, Christmas is just, it, it, it's like gold or, or white gold. Um, and so, so they're, they're I have not seen yet a pink vestment in an Orthodox church. That's there. We don't have the tradition of, of Gaudete Sunday. Uh, that's a specifically a Western thing. But that does make me, you know, that if it's red was a tradition within Orthodoxy, it does make me wonder if maybe it was in some sections of Germany too. Maybe that's why that, that missionary used red and white. I don't know. You know, it's, it's possible. It's, it's but a, burgundy it's a is like red bag. and purple. Yeah, it's such a mixed bag. The tradition yeah. can change. So, like with Lutherans, I do suspect that the the influence was Sweden, but England could have its own deal, you know. And and then in the United States, it could be other factors, and that's where it gets all confusing for us when we're talking about things. You can't say, you often can't say something comes specifically from one thing. Yeah. So let's. I still want to jump in and hear what uh, what Father Nick has to say about some uh, some uh, Episcopal traditions. Um, I can't remember where that train of thought was. Yeah, I do want to. Uh, yeah, we got to keep it short because Lou's got to be gone in like fifteen minutes, and uh, the place I'm trying to get dinner from closes soon. <laughs> Even more important. Yeah. Um, okay. So seeing some family, you're you're gotta eat. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the big thing I know about the Church of England, um, the Episcopal Church, uh, everything like that is, uh, carols. I know it's a big tradition, um, in, especially from Victorian England. Um, any, would, do you want to comment on that? Do you want to comment on anything else? Or I, I assume there's a lot more than carols. Carols. I mean, you know, it, uh, it, I was kind of assigned that uh, that to talk about by uh, by Lou in the in in our little. Uh, no, it was suggested, not assigned. Feel <laughs> but, but no, that's that's fine. So uh, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about lessons and carols. It, I mean, you know, uh, I think other churches have picked it up as a tradition, but it did does seem to have started with um, the the Anglicans. Uh, it's sometimes uh, attributed to uh, the. The dean of um, the church at, at um, uh, Christchurch, no, 
no what is it is it king's college cambridge yeah i think it's oh, king's college, cambridge. beautiful choir anyway uh which which did it in 1918 and then uh the bbc started to air it on the radio about 10 years later uh and and then they uh added an advent lessons and carols uh, in the 30s, maybe 1934. Anyway, uh, and all it is, is uh, nine lessons. Uh, and, and between the nine lessons are carols, um, you know, sung by the choir there, uh, but also, um, you know, and uh, a lot of churches that, that do it also, you know, everybody's invited to join in with the singing of the, the carols, or at least some of them. Uh, it typically starts with um, Once in Royal David City, sung by the first verse sung by a soloist. Um, and then there's, there's a bidding prayer uh, by the officiant. Um, but actually, it, it goes back before 1918. It, uh, from what I understand, it goes goes back to I think 1880 maybe, uh, and it was um, introduced at um, Truro Cathedral, which it was actually still being built. So I think it was it was introduced in this this little wooden structure uh, that was serving as the cathedral until the cathedral was built in in Cornwall, and, and the bishop came up with it. Uh, and part of the reason why he came up with it was, and you know, he wanted to get people interested in the cathedral and, and, and you know, and, and kind of invested in the cathedral. He also wanted to counter the tradition in the town, which was that everybody went to the pubs on Christmas Eve and, and uh, you know, uh, drank until they were jolly and then stumbled home. So he wanted to give them something else to do to ring in the season. Sounds like Orthodox Easter. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, um, yeah, you know, uh, it, it's it's kind of taken on a life of its own since then. One of the things that I think is really interesting about it is that um, there, you know, the Church of England Anglicanism in general, uh, not as much, but even you know, in America, the Episcopal Church in America has always had an element of of Puritanism in it. Uh, until they finally just kind of gave up on us uh, and and <laughs> broke away, at least in America, to become the conservatives broke away to become Congregationalists, and and the liberal Puritans broke away. Yeah, there are such things as liberal pur Puritans broke away to become Unitarian. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, they had uh, when they were in charge, for example, during you know after the English Civil War when. Uh, Cromwell set himself up as Lord uh, Protector of, of England, they had outlawed Christmas. You know, Christmas was seen as, as this uh, kind of uh, body, secular, um, you know, uh, kind of irreligious um, celebration, and they wanted nothing to do with it. And, uh, and so really in, I mean, you know, when, with the restoration of the monarchy and, uh, and the kind of reestablishment of Anglicanism in England and in the colonies, uh, you started, that brought with it uh, this, this view that Christmas 
was something to be celebrated, not just secularly, but by the church, and that the church should offer some kind of services, some kind of liturgy for Christmas. Uh, and, um, and that also brought with it, because the Puritans were typically against hymns and carols, uh, and, and thought you should only um, perhaps sing, or maybe just say the Psalms. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, when Anglicans kind of were reestablished in England uh, in the Episcopal Church in, in America, uh, it, you know, brought with it this reintroduction of, of hymns and carols. And so we really, by, 18, by the late 1800s, that's kind of really coming to fruition. And that's when you see uh, this, this service of, of lessons and carols, which uh, has become so popular now that a lot of churches have um, made it their Christmas Eve service, but, but also wanted to combine it with a uh, celebration of Holy Eucharist. And uh, so in the most recent book of occasional services put out by the Episcopal Church, it has finally allowed that to be the case that you can kind of do a combined um, lessons and carols and Holy Eucharist, which is what we've been doing at, at the Fort Church. Now I'm curious. Um, I, I, I see what you mean with the, uh, how that service has become so popular. There's a, um, a larger uh, former Presbyterian now, like that, this is a new denomination called eco um, church in, uh, in Richmond called third church. It's one of the bigger churches in Richmond. Um, they do a lessons and carols, uh, every year. Um, my, my, my dad's friend is the music director over there. So he, they do a lot of original stuff too, a lot of original compositions and arrangements and things like that. Um, but I'm, I'm curious cause I'm, I'm, I'm remembering this, this movie that came out, uh, a year or two ago, very poorly titled movie, but I'd be interested if you know anything about the history behind it. Um, it was about Charles Dickens writing, like Charles Dickens actually writing a Christmas carol. Uh, it had the unfortunate title of The Man Who Invented Christmas, which is a really terrible title for a movie, but the movie itself was okay. Um, the premise there is that in Victorian England at the time, there really was no Christmas celebration proper, especially not as we know it today. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, so so I, I haven't seen the movie, but uh, in, in part, Dickens helped to to shape the modern conception of Christmas, and and um, you know, he was. It's not as if he he was coming up with all of this on his own. He was drawing from you know high church Anglicans who wanted to do something for Christmas also, and who were starting to do things like like lessons and carols or like celebrating Eucharist, uh, a midnight mass for for Christmas. Um, but, but yeah, there, I mean, there was still a strong Protestant flavor, um, you know, uh, and then, you know, it not as much, I mean, it was still kind of within the church of England, but also among the nonconformist pastors, uh, who, who were more reformed in their, uh, theology, uh, and, and the Methodists, even though uh, John Wesley had been a high church Anglican during his life, the Methodists had kind of taken a turn after his death towards a more um, kind of low church Puritan influence kind of Christianity. So, so there wasn't, it wasn't quite 
the holiday that that it is now, for example, uh, and and was kind of viewed by religious folks as being, uh, oh, you know, I mean, there's still religious folks like this who who decry, you know, how um, secular Christmas is and and how you know people don't really keep to the meaning of the season and they don't recognize Jesus and you know they're so upset at Starbucks for having holiday cups or whatever I mean you know and and so I mean that that's that was I was part of the situation there oh can I say something really quick that's connected to something you had mentioned earlier and that's the um sure go ahead yeah the pagan the pagan influence i mean obviously pagan traditions have come into christianity and in a sense have been baptized and whether we're talking about you know uh stuff having having to do with christmas or or um or even ideas or whatever but um the the thesis that christmas was chosen on december 25th to correspond with saturnalia uh, I think most historians now have have dispensed with that. That seems to have been kind of Puritan propaganda against the Roman Catholic Church. That uh, that in fact um, the reason why December twenty fifth was chosen as the birth of Jesus is because it is exactly nine months from March twenty fifth, which is traditionally considered the date of the execution or the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's, there's, so Jesus was, uh, um, you know. No, 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 no. It was nine months from the, the Annunciation. From the Annunciation. Well, right, right. So the, the Annunciation and the Crucifixion are considered to have happened on the same day. And, and then nine months from that, you get Christmas Day. When that's why it's St. Dismas's Feast Day, I believe. Yeah, that, that's how the early church came up with the date. Again, multiple right. sources, probably multiple influences, probably. But you know, you're talking about a season of darkness to growing light, right? So I mean, it's not a big brain. You don't have to be very creative to. Yeah, it would make sense for secular uh, and like even pagan traditions to, you know, adopt some form of of ritual around that. You know, there's always seen a lot of significance around that time. We're gonna run in a minute, but I do want to ask Nick. And this is dangerous, but really short, Nick, really short. I just need a simple answer. When I've been at Episcopal congregations on the vigil service, that also almost seems like a Lessons and Carols format because you have scripture reading song, scripture reading song. Is that no the norm? And is that maybe influenced by Lessons and Carols? Yeah, that, that's what I was mentioning there at the end of what I was saying about Lessons and Carols is that, 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 um, Episcopal Episcopalian started to merge the two uh, on Christmas Eve, merge what you might call Christmas Mass with, uh, or Christmas Eve Mass, Midnight Mass with the Lessons and Carols. That was not, the rubrics didn't allow that, but it was a practice that started happening so much that, that an allowance was made in the most recent book of occasional but for for easter vigil is that oh for the easter vigil oh yeah. Uh, yeah so the easter vigil is uh is um really kind of based off of uh essentially with the with the orthodox do i mean that that's that's how we determined our, our so father adam do you, do you do a, a reading and then a song reading song well no uh 
there's one gospel read for matins and one gospel read at the divine liturgy. Um, but everything done within the, that framework is scripture, um, especially with regard to the, um, uh, the, ca- the canon during matins. There's, it's all, it all follows scripture. You're talking about the Paschal Vigil. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, this has to do with the liturgical renewal movement that went back and tried to, uh, you know, looked at what the Orthodox were doing, looked at what the most ancient texts said, and tried to recreate something, a liturgy that, that was close to or closer to what the ancient church had done. And, and uh, so the Roman Catholics started doing Easter vigils like this, and we included in our prayer book an Easter vigil like this, too. But, but was it always with all the music? That's what I'm getting at. The, music, you know. the music's optional. The music's not not required. So yeah, that's why I was wondering if it was connected in practice, you know, culturally, just the lessons and carols are well beloved. And those churches that do the all the heavy music. In the same format as Lessons and Carols, basically different stories, of course, but it's it's very similar to me. Yeah, the liturgy just requires uh, certain readings and certain prayers, uh, but it allows for him. Okay, gotcha. All right, that makes sense. All right. I have to admit to a a guilty pleasure um, uh, that I have experienced over the last few years, uh, given that Father Nick's proximity to my own, um, when we're done with our Christmas vigil, I, uh, when I'm able to, because I love the Western Christmas musical tradition, have uh, snuck up to Doswell to the Fork Church. Uh, in order to, because uh, to, Father Nick, I don't know if people know this, but his choir is exceptional. You've mentioned uh, it on a podcast, several podcasts yeah. ago. And and I, I like to go up and hear the, the, the lessons and carols or what have you. At folks at home, I'm pointing to my imaginary watch because <laughs> I have to go anyway, somewhere. But I like to sneak up and hear Father Nick's baby choir. Baby Nick, didn't you have a question for us real quick? Yes, I did. I was going to say we need to wrap up, but I have one rapid fire question just to close out the podcast season. This is the last question I'm going to ask, and everybody's got to keep their answer like very, very short. Um, what is your favorite Christmas song? This comes courtesy of my girlfriend Sarah, who says hi. Um, she would hi, like yeah. to know. She and I would like to know what is your favorite Christmas song? Can be sacred, can be secular. Uh, what What do you like? I'll start to make a quick. It's it's from it's from Denmark. It was from my time in in Scandinavia, and it's Mithjarta, Mithjarta Altid Fanka, which means my heart always. Is it? Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> my my it's well known. My heart always wanders in English, and um, a singer named uh, if you look it up on YouTube, Sissel, if she goes by S I S S E L, Sissel Kirkeber. I think is her name, and and it's uh, was written by a Pietist Lutheran pastor, and it's just his reflecting upon um, the 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 fact that there was no place for Jesus on Christmas Eve for his family, and welcomes Jesus to make a basically a crush in his in his heart. It's kind of a very 
pietistic, but wonderful song. I'll share more about it sometime on our Facebook group or look it up. All right. Father Adam, what's, uh, what's yours? I've been seeing you post a lot of like words I can't read in the Facebook group with, with these Christmas songs. <laughs> a lot of them come in there with, uh, with Cyrillic text, but, uh, I, 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 it's a toss up between uh, which is good evening, everyone. And it talks about the, the three feasts uh, of, of Christmas and, and uh, St. Basil, the first of January and the uh, uh, baptism, I think of Christ, uh, Theophany, and also uh, which is heaven and earth, uh, which these are all uh, Slovak or Ukrainian um, Christmas carols, which, uh in, in in kind of in a, in a not finding a whole lot of good western christmas music other than some of the beautiful lessons and carols I, I i a lot of the beautiful christmas uh sound uh came from you know post uh becoming orthodox and a lot of that had to do with what went on uh, in my first parish and there was a lot of slovak uh subcarpathian russian tradition um that, that went on there so the sound of christmas to me has a lot to do with the ukrainian and, and slovak christmas uh tradition uh, and carols all right so I've, I've posted several of them in the in the facebook group i was honestly expecting you guys to have something with an english title um okay that's we're two for two for two foreign titles here so not that that's bad it's just not what i was expecting father nick what do you got all right so so um I have to say, I really do like uh, a lot of Renaissance uh, and and colonial American Christian. Never mind. But but, but uh, if I had to say, my favorite Advent hymn is "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel." My favorite. Um, I, I have a favorite uh, secular Advent song too from David Gray, but the name escapes me right now. My um, my favorite Christmas carol, I think, is "O Holy Night." Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good one. Um, but I was trying to think about, there, there's a lot of good secular Christmas songs too, like, um, like a change at Christmas time by the flaming lips or, um, <laughs> uh, you know, Dave Matthews's Christmas song, but, but I think I really like, it's a blend of secular and, and, uh, and, um, Christian Christmas music, uh, the album from Sufjan Stevens, I've really come to to love his Christmas. He, he's turning into Father Adam. He I was going to say that's the one, and he gets like <laughs> way to fit like ten songs in there, man. I, I had to but, Advent and a Christmas, right? But the the, the theme Christmas Christmas theme song for us can be from the Ramones. I sent you a, in a in a message on Instant Messenger. It's Merry Christmas. I don't want to fight tonight. <laughs> that, that can be ours. And. And I, I did t- got Rusty Mary Gentleman by the Naked Ladies is pretty good if she hasn't checked that out. Um, I know for me, my favorite secular one. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to jump jump there. Uh, is is uh, the the uh, the Pogues? Uh, um, well, Christy McCall and and oh, Shane I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Christmas something or other. I forget what it's called. Well, I'm. I gotta say, my one of my favorites. Some of my favorite carols um, would probably be, uh, I love Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Even if the melody is kind of overworn, I love the words. Um, 
Uh, oh, Holy Night's obviously a, a favorite. And uh, the, the, the carol that I keep getting stuck in my head, um, just because it's not one that I grew up hearing, is that uh, Ding Dong Merrily on High. Oh, yeah. I, I like it. It's, uh, for some reason, it's just a lot of fun. Um, I like that one, too. And then, of course, you know, the best, some of the best Christmas albums are like uh, Trans-Siberian Orchestra's Christmas Eve and Other Stories. Um, with that big Christmas Eve Sarajevo, um, their big famous one. And for those who don't know, um, Reliant K, uh, it's a band called Reliant K, their Christmas album, Let It Snow, Baby, Let It Reindeer. <laughs> uh, it's a great album. I, I highly recommend it. But with that, we are going to have to wrap up. Um, I'll, I'll share my eight others on, on the Facebook group. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Does anyone have a Christmas blessing to to take us out on? Father Lou's wearing a very Christmassy shirt. Yes, I am. Okay, I, I'll, I'll come up with something. Uh, <laughs> How very Lutheran. From my heart. Yeah. <laughs> Let us pray. Here, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to. Um, just reflect on how you make yourself known through ordinary things to help tell an extraordinary story. During the season of Advent and Christmas, help us to look for you and the joy and hope that your son brings into our lives. Please make it manifest. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And with that, three priest listeners of season one, we wish you a very Merry Christmas and a happy New Year. We will see you. I was going to say, gladly cool. You know, I had this whole thing planned out and I was going to go out on a really high note and then you just jumped in there. Sorry. <laughs> we'll see you in 2021, guys. I ruined everything. 